The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. East Carolina, where's that? Is that North or South Carolina? We get a lot of that here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the campus of East Carolina University. Today's guest not only knows where Eastern Carolina is, he knows what happened there 150 years ago. It's a complex story featuring Confederate and Unionist civilians, federal occupation troops, anxious and ambitious freed people, paternalistic Yankee missionaries, and others. We'll learn all about it when we come back with our guest today, Professor Judkin Browning, author of Shifting Loyalties, The Union Occupation of Eastern North Carolina, on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a overcast but not unpleasant April afternoon in 2011, if you're downloading this many years in the future. It's uh, Friday, as always, here at World Talk Radio, uh, Civil War Talk Radio headquarters on the campus of East Carolina University in the third floor of the Brewster Building, but not speaking for the university, although we'll be talking about this part of the country today. Speaking just for myself, and I know that my guest, uh, Likewise, a member of the UNC system will not risk the wrath of the general administration by presuming to speak for his institution just for himself. That's how we always do it here on Civil War Talk Radio, following the law as closely as possible. With the possible exception, I was just thinking of the opening uh, uh, music. I probably shouldn't raise this point, but a listener who saw the uh, that PBS is rerunning the Ken Burns series, Civil War series, noted, hey, they're using the Civil War talk radio theme music, uh, which uh, is, is an interesting twist. And of course, uh, that, that's the uh, uh, famous uh, fiddle tune written uh, not for the show, but written, uh, I think, in the 1970s for a dance camp at the Shokin in West Virginia. But regardless, uh, I, I'm trusting that the our overlords at World Talk Radio are appropriately paying the composer for that. 
but we won't talk anymore about it. We'll just move on, pretend we're using it appropriately. Um, and remind listeners also that there are uh, good shows in the weeks ahead. Jamie Malinowski, the New York Times blogger, will be with us next week. Uh, no show for Good Friday, April 22nd. Then Jennifer Weber returns on uh, the 29th to talk about Copperheads in the North. Uh, no show the week after that. It's commencement here at ECU, and I'll be telling the parents not to despair that their children have graduated with a history degree. There really is work for them. And uh, the following week, uh, we're into May, May 13, uh, Joshua Howard will be joining us. He's the man counting all the dead from North Carolina. It's a, a fascinating project, and it be interesting to have Josh on the show. He is an ECU alum uh, who's gotten attention in the uh, Wall Street Journal for, for his current project. Uh, but today we have uh, uh, an unusual, unusual con, uh, concentration of North Carolina influence. The show's not always that way. I've been thinking, actually, this this season it's been all border states. We've talked about Missouri on at least three shows in the past two months. Uh, perhaps it's where the scholarship is taking us. If you missed any of those shows, do uh, go to impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney runs a fine website that tells you where, where the shows have been and what's coming up. And you can also buy our guest's books there. Uh, don't want to forget to mention that. He has a link to Amazon. Go through that link and then buy anything you hear on the show. And uh, Mark gets a, a fraction of the proceeds from that to help keep that website intact. I say that uh, out of appreciation for what he does. I don't get anything for that. If you want to buy Did Lincoln Own Slaves or Offer the Regiment or uh, a book of mine, I'm happy to uh, accept the contribution there and I'll send you a signed copy. But you know the drill. It's uh, uh, the same as, as always. So uh, without further uh, delay, let's talk about Eastern North Carolina. Our guest is uh, Professor Judkin Browning from Appalachian State University. Uh, Dr. Browning, are you there? I am. Uh, it, it's good to talk to you. You and I got to meet just briefly, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, in Raleigh at the uh, the conference, public history conference. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's right. Um, and uh, just at the risk of, of over-informalizing, uh, 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 can we go by first names? Uh, it, it takes forever to say mine, so please call me Jerry. Well, I would insist that you would call me Justin. Then, then we'll definitely do that. Um, well, I often start the show commiserating with fellow academics about the, the sad state of the budget. At least I do that this year. And, and as a fellow UNC system person, I guess you're having the same uh, uh, difficulty in your department trying to figure out who's going to be here in the fall and all those other hard questions. Well, absolutely. The state of North Carolina is in a pinch, there's no doubt. Uh, we're, we're not alone in that around the country, certainly, but it's, it's, it's a tough time. Um, I will also say that, that it, it is with an effort of, of will that I, I call you uh, the book is, is, is a, a fine book, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. I know our listeners will want to get hold of a copy. But I am uh, deep inside, scratched beneath the purple and gold pirate surface. I am actually a Michigan man. Uh, my undergraduate and law degrees are from the University of Michigan. And I don't talk trash about Michigan football over the last, what is it, decades of, of incredible success at the big house. I don't 
demean our opponents. And then one year, one summer, somebody said, oh, hey, I'm going to the game this fall. We're, uh, Michigan's going to play Appalachian State. And I laughed, and I talked the big talk. I said, I don't know if the scoreboard will go high enough for the score for <laughs> playing a Division II team. I'd never mocked an opponent in advance before, and you know what happened. Um, it, it's it's, yes, it was. it's karma. It's a big. So, uh, it's still a big thing here. It, and they, they still uh, sell T-shirts. It, it, um, it's the biggest upset possibly in all college football history. Uh, my mighty Wolverines defeated by the scrappy Division Two champions. Uh, at Appalachian State. For our international listeners, and, and I do get quite a lot of email from around the world, uh, they, they get they start tuning out when we talk American college football, but <laughs> Michigan's a much bigger school than, than Appalachian, and it was really an astonishing upset, and uh, Michigan has not recovered from it yet, I can tell you that. No, that certainly is true, and they're certainly having problems still. In my yeah. defense, I will say that I was I was here at App State, but of course I was in no way associated with the football program. So certainly I contributed nothing toward the victory. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll, in that case, we can we can move forward and, and talk uh, uh, talk Civil War talk instead. What what got you interested in uh, uh, writing about the eastern part of the state, Appalachian State? For our, our non Tar Heel listeners, is is in the western part of uh, the state, uh, not in, or at least not in the eastern part, certainly. Um, so uh, how, how did you come to choose uh, Eastern North Carolina's occupation as your topic? Well, certainly, as you know, I mean, uh, by the time a book comes out in print, it's perhaps sometimes a decade's worth of work in, in working on it. In my case, mm-hmm. it's pretty close to accurate. I, I discovered Eastern North Carolina and, and chose it as a topic to write about long before I knew my destiny was going to lead me to the mountains of North Carolina. So that just ended up being a coincidence. But when I was a graduate student getting a master's degree at North Carolina State, in public history, actually, but I was hmm. intending to, well, I was always intending to go on to a PhD institution, and, and so I wished to write a master's thesis, even though the public history program at NC State didn't require that. And so in investigating what to write about for that master's thesis, I, I stumbled upon uh, some facts that I didn't know about the eastern part of North Carolina, and what really lured me in was that there were two regiments that were formed in the eastern part of the state, the first in the North Carolina Union Infantry Regiments in North Carolina, composed of native white North Carolinians. Many people may be aware that a lot of African Americans joined the Union Army, but I was unaware, for one, that a lot of white North Carolinians in the eastern part of the state joined the Union Army that was occupying their, their state. And so it was it began there, investigating who were these people, what might have been their motivations for joining the Army. And I believe that I originally thought that I was going to write uh, a history of the sort of eastern part of the state, the people, why they would join the Confederacy or why they would join the Union. But then I became, through the research, it just became a much more fascinating study to me to look at all the interactions that were going on with the military occupation forces, and then eventually over time, I narrowed that down to a fairly selective uh, two-county region, partly for continuity and partly because the wealth of sources were so good in those two counties that it it made it sort of easy to decide. So I didn't really begin thinking that I was going to look at military occupation. It ended up sort of meandering in that direction. So let's talk about these two counties, uh, Craven and Carteret County, uh, without the benefit of a a map or a PowerPoint to show our listeners 
Uh, can you sort of tell us something about these counties, uh, where they are in relation to the ocean, for example? Sure. Well, Carteret County is, is borders the coast. Uh, its county seat is Beaufort, which in South Carolina is pronounced Beaufort, but in North Carolina it's pronounced uh-huh. Beaufort. And they both probably actually pronounce it incorrectly, uh, if you <laughs> go back to the old European pronunciation. But um, so Beaufort sits right on the sea, and the easiest way to visualize it is that Carteret County and Beaufort sit at the very southern tip of the Outer Banks. So if you think of the Outer Banks running from basically the border of Virginia all the way down south to you know, a certain part of the state of North Carolina where they, they end, Beaufort is where they end. And then Craven County is just directly, uh, it's adjacent to Beaufort. It's slightly northwest, north by northwest of Carteret County. I mean, Carteret County and Craven border each other. And so it's that two-county region. And Craven County's capital or county seat is New Bern, and it sits on the Neuse River, which opens into the ocean, it actually opens into the Outer Banks, and it's somewhat difficult to get out to the ocean from the Neuse River, but once upon a time it used to be easier. And so they're both considered themselves coastal communities. They both, Newbern and Beaufort, were both strongly attached to the sea and uh, the waterways and their industries associated thusly. So they, these are... But they're they're not they're dissimilar as well. I thought it was interesting, uh, and, and even for somebody who lives in the area, and I'm I'm not a native of the state, uh, learning about it all the time. But I was interested to learn that, that while Beaufort has a, a very good harbor, it really was not much of a commercial center compared to New Bern. That's correct. It was um, you know people who lived there or people who wrote at the time said that you know and one guy said that Beaufort was just about as cut off from the rest of the world as you could. Uh, as you could be, um, and it really it was more, it was cut off from the state of North Carolina because Beaufort did have, um, even today it's generally considered uh, that Beaufort has perhaps the best harbor in the state of North Carolina, but at the time there wasn't really any way to get from Beaufort to the hinterland uh, because Beaufort is, Carteret County is surrounded and bisected by lots of swamps and creeks and uh, really uh, difficult land to sort of drain and to establish uh, comprehensive roadways or railroads or anything in that area. So Newburn, which was situated on the Neuse River, Newburn actually became a much more valuable port than Beaufort ever was, much to the dismay of the good people who lived in Beaufort, who always wished that they could somehow be better connected to the rest of the state and and therefore be a, a commercial port for the state. Yeah, you, you could sail into Beaufort, but you couldn't get anywhere. And, and to the state, eastern North Carolina is extraordinarily flat, so that if you get uh, one inch of rain, all those swamps and creeks everywhere, everything goes up an inch and everything floods. Sure. Uh, there's no drainage anywhere. So uh, I can see it would be difficult to get from the coast until they, they build the railroad to Newburn, and then you've got access that way. Right. Now, the people, the people living in these communities – you point out are not uh, are not rabid secessionists. Uh, when the war begins, they are not, or uh, before the war, they're not much interested in the Confederacy. Right, actually, and and there's and so this is where the similarities and the differences of Carteret and Craven counties sort of come into play. Um, for much of their history, uh, Craven and Carteret, well, let's say for much of the antebellum period, when the first whisperings of secession began, I mean, even back. If you want to go to 1820 or you know, especially the 1832 nullification crisis, 
Craven was, and Craven and Carteret both were opposed to secession. They both felt that it was foolish, and this carries through right through the 1850s. And you really don't sense a shift at all until around 1859, when the John Browns uh, failed raid at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, in October of 1859. And then you start detecting a, a shift in the sentiments of the people of Craven County. They have a larger slave population than Carteret County, although by no means as large as, as many other counties in the state. It was still less than 50% of the total county. But they had a larger slave population, and they had a greater sort of sense of fear or sense of trepidation. And so the thinking that you know every northerner in their midst might be another John Brown. And so Craven County starts making sort of murmurings and, and taking steps to prepare for a potential future conflict beginning in 1859. They form militia companies and, and things like that. Uh, Carteret County still never does. They maintain their sort of strong unionist streak, quite frankly, right up until the firing on Fort Sumter in April of 1861. And it's only after Lincoln calls for troops to put down the rebellion do the folks of Carteret start to sort of reluctantly uh, change sides and shift to a, a more secessionist you note that when the when the call does come out for troops and North Carolina responds by seceding, uh, both sides turn out their young men, but uh, the percentage is much higher in Craven County. Absolutely, I uh, and I haven't done a comprehensive study of the state to see exactly where Craven ranks in the state, but it must rank pretty high, I would think, because Craven County sent. A little bit more than 70% of their young man, pop, young male population, men of military age, into the Confederate Army. Over 1,100 men from Craven County, and and that's pretty, um, you know, that's pretty hefty. <laughs> that's that's, that, a, that's a, an incredible a, number, really. It, it, pretty it's, substantial figure. And it, it Carteret, and you're, I'm sorry, um, and Carteret was much less. You're right. Uh, there was this initial sort of fervor in Carteret that led to the creation of two companies for the Confederacy right away. And then it became a much more difficult negotiation to get men in Carteret to join. And in the end, Carteret only ended up sending about 30% of its uh, male military-age population to the Confederacy. So even that still reflects the fact that the folks of Carteret still maintained you know, a pretty strong sense of ambivalence, perhaps, toward the Confederacy, uh, still a certain attachment to the Union made them a little bit more hesitant to to send everyone they could have possibly sent into the Confederate Army. Well, I thought it was interesting, as I was reading this chapter, it reminded me of, of Joseph Gladhart's work on Lee's Army, where he looks at the the soldiers themselves and, and what their individual backgrounds were in terms of uh, the 1860 census, what how much property they had or their families had. And again, you draw a clear line here between the Craven and Carteret soldiers. They're very different. Yeah, the, uh, the average wealth of the Craven soldier who joins the Confederate Army is, is higher, on average, uh, than the Carteret. But in the, we can make a contrast even later to the men who joined the Union uh, Army for both sides. And a couple other things come out of it as well. I mean, one of the things I find that in Carteret County, the men who joined the Confederate Army tended to do it on what I call a sort of conditional basis. They were content to join the Confederate Army as long as they could be guaranteed they would remain in the coastal North Carolina region. Even <laughs> Specifically, they wanted to remain in the Carteret uh, County region and, and defend sort of their 
small chunk of the Confederacy uh, right there, while the men of Craven County um, didn't seem to have nearly as much of a, a conditional sense. I mean, the men who joined the Craven County regiments, they the vast majority of them end up joining infantry regiments that go off and join Lee's Army eventually, or the Army of Northern Virginia that will eventually become Lee's Army. And and so Carteret, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, at one point when one individual in Carteret County, a, a fellow by the name of Benjamin Leecraft, actually tries to raise the third company that eventually forms from Carteret County. And, you know, the first two formed really quickly, but he's trying to raise a third company in June and July of 1861, and he finally writes to the governor and says, you know, I'm actually, I can't do what you wish, which is I can't form a company and say, you know, use this company as you desire. But he tells the gov- governor, I can form a company if I can get a guarantee that this company can stay here in the coastal region of North Carolina. And the governor relents and says, okay, I'll accept that. And so Lee Craft does finally get his company. But then the the turnabout is once the Union Army comes and occupies the eastern part of North Carolina and Lee Craft's company has to retreat and evacuate the coastal region of North Carolina, many of the Carteret men who were in his company simply left and went back home. So their their Union or their, their Confederate loyalty is quite conditional. We'll find out. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll talk about how conditional the Union loyalty was as well. We'll see what happened militarily in the area and otherwise talk about Eastern North Carolina and its Civil War history today with Judkin Browning, author of Shifting Loyalties, here on Civil War Talk Radio. You don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Judkin Browning. He's the author of Shifting Loyalties, the Union Occupation of Eastern North Carolina. And we've been talking about just what and where uh, Eastern North Carolina is in this context, specifically looking at uh, Craven and Carteret counties, the uh, seats of, uh, of the county seats of which are, are New Bern and Beaufort, North Carolina, uh, both uh, sea-going communities, coastal communities that were filled with uh, anti-secession Union loyalists until Fort Sumter, when both com- both communities produced Confederate troops, Confederate units, but uh, in differing amounts. Certainly, New Bern more uh, secessionist than uh, uh, than Beaufort was. The uh, Judd, can you mention the people in in uh, Carteret County were willing to enlist? Certainly, some of them were willing to enlist if they could stay home, uh, which 
it essentially would mean they'd be stationed at, at Fort Macon, which right. is, is a pre-war uh, federal brick fortress that is sort of architecturally, you know, uh, has the flavor of Fort Sumter. It's not the same, it's not on an island and it's not the same shape, but uh, right. a brick masonry fortress. Um, right. uh, fort Macon's a pretty interesting place to visit today. It, it looks like a fort. It's a fun place. Families <laughs> go there and sure. play on the... the what, how did it function during the Civil War? Well, it's interesting. Uh, fort Macon certainly was built in the... Uh, well, it was begun in the 1830s and it was completed... I think it took eight years to build total, and it is a, a, a masonry fort with sort of earth components. So, sort of in a way, we sort of call it an earth and masonry fort in a lot of ways. But what it was was it certainly was built along as a string of forts along the eastern coast. Were built in the 1830s as, of course, coastal protection against uh, foreign invasion. And at the time of the Civil War, Fort Macon was not inhabited by a federal garrison, unlike Fort Sumter, which of course, as you know, Fort Sumter wasn't originally inherited by a federal garrison. There was just a federal mm-hmm. garrison in Charleston, and they made their way to Fort Sumter in December of 1860. But Fort Macon wasn't inhabited because there was no foreign threat or even a sense of one. It was inhabited by one man, a fellow by the name of William Alexander, who served as a maintenance man. He was basically just there to uh, make basic repairs on the fort and keep it in, you know, from becoming dilapidated, although I'm not sure how successful he was at that. And when... Uh, the firing on Fort Sumter began. The uh, a few citizens in Beaufort, North Carolina, led by a man by the name of Josiah Pender, took it upon themselves to go and take Fort Macon for the Confederacy. And this is even before North Carolina had seceded. It was even before Lincoln had called for troops. They actually left on April 14th and captured Fort Macon once they had heard that Fort Sumter had been fired on. And so there's it's certainly a, a small group of people in Beaufort who were sort of eager, uh, if you will, for the cause, for the secessionist cause. And it doesn't obviously take anything at all to convince the one man that he should hand over the keys and leave. <laughs> he does. And, and there's no bloodshed. It's, it's, it's fairly peaceful. And then Fort Macon, you know, of course, North Carolina is going to secede the next month, and Fort Macon becomes a uh, part of the North Carolina defense system. And they spend most of 1861 trying to build up its defenses. It doesn't really have many quality cannons. It, you know, it hasn't really. Uh, it's been allowed to go in a little bit of disrepair. They have to do a lot of sort of manual labor to get it up to snuff. And it ends up being inhabited by about four or five companies of North Carolina troops, including two companies of Carteret County men and one company of Craven County men. And that's basically how it is when the Union Army first arrives in the spring of 1862, and Fort Macon, the Union Army arrives, they capture New Bern, it's the sort of the Union Expeditionary Force under General Ambrose Burnside, they capture New Bern on March 14th, 1862, after a brief battle uh, south of the city, and then they move from New Bern overland south toward Beaufort, basically cutting off the people who are in the, the Beaufort area. And then Fort Macon becomes besieged both by land and sea, of course. And it tries to hold out. The Fort Macon's Confederate commander decides, you know, I'm not going to surrender, even though it's obviously hopeless. I'm going to, you know, do what honor and duty calls for at the time, which is making some show of resistance. You know, you can't just submit without doing anything for your honor. And so on April 25th, 
uh, a bombardment begins on Fort Macon. It lasts the better part of the day, about 11 or 12 hours. And then finally, the Fort Macon's commander decides, okay, this, you know, we, we've, we've satisfied our honor, and so we are going to now surrender. And Fort Macon surrenders on April 26th and never really sees any action for the rest of the war. And in, indeed, that's the, the end of major action until Sherman arrives uh, in, in eastern North Carolina uh, the, for, for the war. But at this point, Burnside's troops have now landed and occupied uh, New Bern after a, a short battle and a, a rather inglorious uh, flight of the Confederate forces afterwards. Uh, when they get to New Bern, they find uh, it's like there's nobody there. It's like a ghost town. Well, right. When New Bern was... You know, it is an interesting thing. Once Craven County and Newburn in particular had decided that they were Confederate, decided that they were in favor of the secessionist cause, then they just sort of went all in, so to speak, and they they really bought into it for the most part. I mean, the, the seems to be the majority of the population, and and they tried to set up a defensive line south of Newburn to anticipate an invasion. Part of the problem for the Confederacy was that the entire coast of North Carolina was vulnerable, certainly, to uh, amphibious invasion. And, of course, every community wanted to make sure that there were Confederate troops in their community to defend them because you know, this whole idea of the greater good is, is all well and nice, but you know, the greater good is to defend my hometown. Mm, so no Yankees in up, my backyard. Exactly. And so what the Confederates ended up doing was, and actually some of the Confederate officers, uh, particularly uh, the young, famous Lieutenant Colonel Henry Bergwin, who was of the 26th North Carolina, were complaining bitterly that, well, this is a poor strategy. We are dividing our forces, spreading them so thin, basically trying to cover, trying to put a few troops everywhere, that wherever Burnside decides to attack, he's going to be able to break through anywhere. And that's, of course, what happens. We, The Confederacy is so uh, spread thin that they don't have enough troops to guard Newburn adequately, and Burnside's able to overwhelm the Confederate forces and make them retreat. The citizens of Newburn sort of knew that this was coming, and they there have been rumors for months and months that the invasion was coming, and then finally when it happens in March, some citizens of Newburn try to make light of it, and you know, the newspaper was broadcasting that, oh, you know, we're going to be here forever, and there were gentlemen in Newburn. One guy made a bet of $500 that no Yankee troops would ever set foot in Newburn, and, and as I say in the book, I'm not sure anybody actually ever took him up on that bet. <laughs> Probably should have. And in on the on the morning of March 14th, you have uh, young ladies in Newburn who are 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 told by the Confederate soldiers to cook dinners because we're gonna we're gonna whip the Yankees and we're gonna come back for lunch and we're gonna sort of celebrate and um and and talk about how good we were and then of course they they went and met the Yankees and then they came back <laughs> through Newburn but they raced back through Newburn and on the, on the way out of town to the other side. And the citizens of Newburn had sort of had a contingency plan. They did have a train waiting in Newburn, sort of ready to go, just in case the worst should happen. And when word came that the worst had happened, then a, a sort of panic or stampede sets in in Newburn, and everyone who can flocks to the train and takes the railroad out of town, but those who can't flock to the roads carrying, in many cases, you know, whatever they consider their most valuable possessions with them. And you have the Union soldiers who come into town soon after the whites evacuate, tell these stories of, of all sorts of things, you know, houses, the front doors left open, you know, people have obviously left in a hurry, of meals still sitting on the tables, 
and they come in and see that, oh, well, you know, they've cooked a bunch of food, but nobody's here to enjoy it. Pianos in the middle of the street, because obviously somebody considered that valuable. They try to carry it away, but then decide, okay, this is too heavy, it's slowing me down, and so let's just leave it and let's move. So it, it obviously was a bit of a panic scene in Newburn as the majority of the white population fled. So the Yankees take over. At this point in the war, uh, McCollin is in charge, uh, is, is general-in-chief uh, at this time, and his policy, and, and for that matter, Lincoln's policy, is is to reconcile Southern civilians. Uh, the, the Union, certainly Lincoln, has not given up the thought that there's a deep well of Southern Unionism, that, that if we could only tap it and, and get beyond Jefferson Davis and his his, his co-conspirators, we could get the good people of the South back in the Union. So so when, when Burnside's troops arrive in New Bern, they, they don't begin to uh, uh, tear the place apart or, or act in a vindictive fashion. No, actually, just the opposite. I mean, when they arrive in New Bern, the first thing they do is spend almost the entire day putting on fires because the Confederacy, in their evacuation, the Confederate Army had put the torch to things that they thought would be of value to the Union soldiers and so the first thing the Union Army does when they get to town is basically act as a, a firefighting brigade. And you're, and you're right, Burnside does um, believe strongly in McClellan's um, idea of conciliation, if you will, that, which, of course, is, as you said, is Lincoln's idea. This idea that the vast majority of Southerners really are probably Unionists at heart, but they were either coerced or, or duped into uh, joining the Confederacy, and that if the Union Army comes in and shows... You know, demonstrates force, but with kindness and benevolence, it'll prove to the Southerners that you know, we mean you no harm, we're actually the good guys, and then people will rejoin the Union. And so, yeah, the, the Union Army is actually quite um, respectful of, of property, well, for the most part. Um, when they get there, they certainly help themselves to a few spoils when they first arrive in New Bern, primarily in the abandoned houses. But for the most part, in the region, they do their best to demonstrate that you know we are advocating a conciliatory policy, and we are not going to... Burnside issues a proclamation saying we're not going to interfere with Southerners' property, we're going to respect antebellum North Carolina laws, Um, and the implication there was, you know, we're not really going to do anything with slavery, we're not going to take your slave property, we know this is a great fear amongst many people, but that's not why we're here. And it was all well and good, and it, it was true Burnside did not intend to do that, but what he wasn't counting on was the the slave property taking it upon themselves to uh, <laughs> to force Burnside's hand in a lot of ways, and and he ends up having to um, make decisions on what to do with the with the slave population when when thousands of slaves start fleeing into the New Bern and Beaufort region from the North Carolina hinterlands. And this is. Uh... It's, it's, after, it's, it's almost a year now after Butler has come up with the contraband concept, uh, right. uh, the idea that you can declare the slaves contraband of war. You don't have to return them to their owners. By this time, I think Congress has actually prohibited officers from returning slaves to Confederate owners. But the the issue is there. The, 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 and this is one of the interpretive uh, thrusts of, of your work, it seems to me, that, that the slaves are, are actors. They're not just acted upon. They, they initiate this process. And for I mean, the, the conclusion, yes. Well, they do, and and this idea that um, well, there's other many scholars who have argued that in a lot of ways it was the slaves who sort of forced the Lincoln administration's hand on emancipation in some ways that he you know 
by late 1862, you could not ignore any longer the tens of thousands of slaves that were coming into Union lines. But that's particularly true in eastern North Carolina, because what happens is once the Union Army arrives on the coast and it becomes apparent that they're there to stay, then lots of African Americans, and I, I can't remember exactly, but I should have the figures in front of me, but I don't. But I mean, I know that the population, the black population in Carteret County quadruples, and I think the black population in Uburn uh, quintuples during the course of the war. I mean, you have literally tens of thousands of African Americans fleeing to the Union lines on the coast. And this creates a problem for the white civilians, and not to mention the Union soldiers. For the whites, when the Union Army first arrived, I mean, one of the major points that I make in the book is that when the Union Army first arrived, that there are an awful lot of whites who decide this actually isn't such a bad thing. Um, and, you know, I make the case that in many cases the whites welcome the, the Union Army. I mean, they certainly, once you get past the initial shock of being captured, and maybe a week or so passes and they have to decide, well, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? What I find is that the, the many of the whites in the region decide, you know, I don't ever have a problem going back to being a unionist. I have been one my entire life. I've really only been a secessionist sort of reluctantly for a brief period of time. And the Union Army brings a lot of benefits with it, uh, not the least of which is uh, a viable trade opportunities. I mean, they bring economic benefits with them. And the Union soldiers quickly say that stores start reopening with, uh, <laughs> one of them says, you know, the people are you know, reopening with cheerfulness and profit. You know, basically as, as the money starts coming in, that people start... Uh, uh, thinking that the Union Army isn't such a bad thing after all. And a lot of people throw their lot back in with the Union and take the oath of allegiance so they can so they can open their business and, and do their trade. And it certainly helps that you have now thousands of Union soldiers in the region with money to burn, um, eager to buy the food the locals are selling or whatever um, dry goods that they're selling. And the only thing they can't buy is liquor, even though they are pretty clever at finding ways of buying that too. And so... Most of the white residents, well, you know, you know, it's hard to quantify most, of course, but, I mean, the documents suggest that many, at least, of the white resident, residents that remain in the region really welcome or are content with the Union Army being there. And this seems to go fairly smoothly for about six months. And then in late 1862, you start detecting a serious shift in sort of white attitudes toward the Union soldiers. And it, I... I would argue it's no coincidence that that shift coincides with Lincoln's issuance of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which sort of indicates that the Union is now going to look different from the Union in 1860. And for many local whites, that's a real problem, because when they decide, you know, I don't mind being a Unionist again, what they were really looking for was a return to the Union of 1860 before the war, and when it becomes apparent that the new union is going to bring with it African-American independence and sort of hints of equality, whether it's legal or political or whatever, then that really becomes too much for many people to bear. Well, we'll take a break on that moment uh, and come back and talk more about how attitudes evolve and what happens to uh, the freed people, the soldiers, the civilians in eastern North Carolina. We're talking with Judkin Browning, author of Shifting Loyalties, the Union Occupation of Eastern North Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
the World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. If you are looking to get started or are currently operating a home-based business, you might be looking for answers. What are the risks? What business should I get started in? How will I market my business? How do I balance my professional life with my other life? For answers, you need to tune into the Home-Based Business Show with Helene Leontzos. Each week, we'll bring you a step-by-step practical guide to starting and maintaining your home-based business. Listen every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. My guest is Judkin Browning. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're talking about Eastern North Carolina during the Civil War, its occupation by Burnside's federal troops, and the response of locals, both black and white, to the Union occupation. Uh, Confederate forces fled after uh, being defeated just south of New Bern uh, on the coast. And from that time in early 62 through the end of the war, Union forces occupied the area. And, uh, Judkin, you were talking about how the the white population responded relatively positively, those civilians who stayed behind, to Union occupation. Uh, Confederate sympathy was never that deep uh, before the war. Secessionist sympathy was not deep before the war. And uh, when the troops bring stability and money to spend in the, the stores, there's good feeling, but that begins to evaporate. You point out, uh, as we left, uh, not coincidentally, around the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, and as as your book points out, and I hadn't really thought this point through clearly before, the Emancipation Proclamation excludes uh, places under Union control, uh, states like uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, parts of Virginia, Louisiana, where the Union forces are in control are not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. It's expressly limited to places in rebellion. But eastern North Carolina, even though it's firmly under Union control, is covered. It is not excluded. All the slaves in that Union part of the state are freed by the proclamation. Uh, and that, you say, turns uh, is a big factor in how the white population begins to turn against the occupiers. That's right. And and you actually can um, you can see a shift starting even a little bit earlier than that. I mean, from the moment uh, Lincoln appoints Edward Stanley to be military governor of North Carolina, Stanley was a Craven County native, but he had moved to California a few years before the war. But then Lincoln calls him back to be military governor of North Carolina, and he chooses Stanley because he figures, well, Stanley's going to know most of the at least wealthy individuals in the region, and of course Stanley does. And so Stanley goes to North Carolina, and when he arrives in North Carolina, he sees Burnside uh, trying to figure out what to do with the African-American slaves who have fled to the Army, and so Burnside's putting them to work, I mean, under the contraband policy that you mentioned earlier, and and Burnside's paying the African-Americans for doing labor. And and Stanley isn't really a big fan of that, but what he really isn't a fan of is the fact that some Union soldiers have taken upon themselves to be teaching African-Americans to read which, of course, is against the law in North Carolina. It's, it's illegal for a slave to, to learn how to read. And so Stanley orders the school closed, and there's a big row over that, and the school teacher goes to Abraham Lincoln and complains, and Lincoln says, I promise you I never gave Stanley 
uh, orders to do that, and he orders the schools opened again, and Stanley relents. And then you have a, a slave owner in North Carolina, or in New Bern, who comes to Stanley and says that some Massachusetts soldiers have encouraged all his slaves to run away, and they have. And he wants to have the slaves returned to him. And Stanley says, you know, encourages them to take the oath of allegiance, and then says, well, why don't you go and use some uh, sort of persuasiveness to uh, convince your slaves to rejoin you, you know, do it nonviolently. So the owner goes and does it and claims that he got uh, one of his slaves to agree to come back with him. But then the Massachusetts soldiers paid that owner a visit that night and took the slave away again and burned his barn and burned some other building of his and, and sort of warned them, better let your slaves go. And so you already have folks starting to see that the Union soldiers, many of them who are from New England, many of them have abolitionist tendencies. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of the soldiers are actually from Massachusetts, which has a strong abolitionist tradition. And so many of the soldiers are sort of taking it upon themselves to free the slaves, if you will, in a sort of um, de facto sense. And, And Stanley sort of realized his powerlessness to command the army and to to overthrow this. But everyone in the region sort of assumes that, well, if the war ends fairly soon, then once the war ends and the Union wins, everything's going to go back to the way it was. But that, of course, changes when Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation and Eastern North Carolina is not exempted. Because now, after the Emancipation Proclamation comes out, it's clear that, well, once the war ends, things aren't going to go back to the way they were. Things are going to now go from being de facto to de jure, if you will, and you, by law, the slaves are going to be free. And so that's what happens on January 1st, 1863. And so once the whites recognize what, what all comes with that, then they start really getting um, unhappy, and, and many of them start resisting the occupation. And you can sort of trace the shift in local sentiment, ironically, by looking at the Union soldier letters and the Union soldiers, when they first arrive, and throughout the summer of 1862, or the summer and the fall, generally are saying positive things about, oh, you know, the inhabitants like us, I detect a lot of loyalty here, um, the people seem to be, you know, fairly pleased that we're here, they're pleased that they can make some money. And then it's almost on, as if on cue, by January of 1863, those same soldiers are writing completely different uh, sentiments in their letters. Their tone has shifted. And then they're saying, these people are not loyal, these people are, you know, these people hate us, they hate the federal government, you know, it'll be better if these people go on their own. It's, it becomes a really sort of uh, dark and embittered tone amongst the Union soldiers, and it's because they detect a lot more hostility amongst the local whites than they had during that halcyon summer of 1862, if you will. There is a, a line you quote here where a, uh, a farmer... Uh, is going to the market and uh, he's ordered by federal officers he has to stand back soldiers go first uh, negroes next rebels last and it it reminded me i was showing uh, students in a civil war and reconstruction class today a clip from uh, a birth of a nation where a union black regiment is marching along a sidewalk and a confederate ex-confederate officer attempts to walk in front of them and has to let them go by and uh, while the filmmaker wants us to be outraged that the soldiers get to go by and the white civilian has to wait, uh, it strikes the students as odd that why any civilian would think he has a right to hold up a whole column of soldiers to go strolling. But, of course, it's because they're black. Uh, and a white audience in 1915 uh, is supposed to sympathize that uh, the black people should wait for the white man to walk by. 
And here was exactly the same sentiment. Uh, uh, this white farmer is, is outraged that he has to let not only soldiers, but Negroes go ahead of him. Well, and and, and it's that lack of privilege that, that seems to be the most critical point here. Right, and, and that quote actually reveals a, a bit of the shift in tone as well, because the Union soldiers, and he says, soldiers first, Negroes second, and rebels last. What, what it, the Union soldiers have detected so much hostility by this time in the region that they just assume that, well, every white citizen's a rebel. Um, whereas when they first arrived, they thought they saw a lot of unionism. And so now, you know, this farmer who's, who relates the quote, um, you know, he's already de facto considered a rebel by the Union soldier, or at least by that Union soldier. So it sort of indicates this attitude shift that's going on in the region. And there are certainly many other things that that cause the whites to, well, they certainly resent um, the the racial policies that the federal government are bringing in, whether they were formal or informal, whatever they may have been. They resent the legal powers that are given. They resent the fact that the Union Provost Marshal listens to African-American testimony and will make arrests based on that testimony. All of that was illegal in North Carolina. And they resent the privileges that African-Americans seem to be given. And then, of course, they resent the fact that uh, the Union Army begins enlisting African-American soldiers into the Army. And many of the, many African-Americans enlist in Newburn and Beaufort into the Union Army, and they, they do so in the spring and summer of 1863. And that really just sort of ratchets up the tension sort of an extra level, because now the whites in the community see you know, African-Americans in uniform, and, and they fear you know, all these apocalyptic visions of you know, race war and things like that, and they think the federal government is, is sort of bringing that about. So it becomes a real nasty uh, situation. The the result of this uh, is that uh, somewhat like uh, Kentucky, Eastern Carolina becomes a Confederate state or a Confederate part of a state after the war uh, uh, rather than during. And uh, you talk about how, uh, just to jump way ahead, uh, how, how these attitudes persist to today. Um, uh, so certainly Eastern North Carolina is not, uh, you know, it, 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 I guess it, it is not considered a uh, a hotbed of unionist. Uh, uh, there's enough neo Confederacy around here, is what I'm trying to say, uh, to, to to last anyone. Uh, did, did you detect that uh, in your research? Well, I did. I mean, and and part of it is just uh, if you visit the regions, and I've gone around and, and given several talks um, across the state, either for this book or a previous one I did a couple of years ago, an edited diary of a man who lived in Beaufort, um, or if I've talked to some high school groups around. And, and one of the questions I usually ask is, how many people, first of all, were even aware that the eastern part of North Carolina was under military occupation at any time during the war? And I find that uh, a majority of North Carolinians have no idea. Um, that that's, that's not something that's generally taught. And it's even particularly acute when you go to eastern North Carolina, and I ask the question there, and I sort of expect, well, at least this area should know that you were occupied during the war, and, this, and the percentages are the same. I mean, it's the same sort of percentage of people who do not are unaware that their home county was occupied during the war. And if you go to Beaufort, or if you go to New Bern, or if you go to Fort Macon, you really have to hunt and sort of consciously be looking for evidence of occupation in order to find it. You won't I mean, you'll almost stumble across it accidentally. You, you, it's not actually something that's preached. I mean, the Beaufort, you know, in many ways, Beaufort tries to interpret itself as a, a colonial uh, town, so they choose mm -hmm. that time period to sort of focus on. Fort Macon, sort of to my dismay, well, sort of, but Fort Macon, you know, 
consistently insist on referring to it as the war between the states, and that is how they refer to the Civil War in all of their uh, text inside of Fort Macon, which I find sort of bizarre for a North Carolina mm-hmm. State Historical uh, site. But nonetheless, they depict Fort Macon up until April 26, 1862, and then it's almost as if interpretation stops. Well, the fact of the matter is, from that point until the end of the war, it was occupied by Union soldiers, including it was occupied primarily by the Union soldiers who were native North Carolinians, the 1st and the 2nd North Carolina Union Regiment. So I think that would be a rich opportunity to look at, well, you know, who were the men who occupied this fort? What is their duty? What is their life like? But it doesn't really make any effort for that. And then Newburn also, I mean, prides themselves on sort of depicting the Battle of Newburn in March 4th, 1862, and so they do a good job of that. And at the Newburn Historical Society, you will find um, some evidence of Union occupation, but it's not something that you would just walk around the streets of Newburn and, and see uh, fairly commonly. Again, you have to sort of like go out of your way to look for it. And But whenever we talk about Civil War, you know, now with the sesquicentennial and things like that, I mean, people will celebrate the sort of Confederate contribution of Newburn, which in some ways is certainly justified. They sent many men into the Confederate Army, and there's no way of denying that. But even in Carteret County, uh, they sort of celebrate the Confederate heritage of Carteret County, um, even though you could argue very strongly that Carteret Carteret County was uh, very ambivalent um, toward the Confederacy. So one of the things I argue in the book is that in many ways, this eastern part of North Carolina really becomes Confederate at the end of the war. And I call them, what I refer to, uh, they become confirmed Confederates in 1865, where they had only been conditional Confederates in 1861. And as I say, in in many ways, they really sort of, after three years of Union occupation and all the things that come with it, the Union soldier presence, the Northern Benevolent Societies to come south and try to teach the African Americans how to read, which really angers the white Southerners, and all the things that come with that, they decide then to, to really sort of pledge allegiance to the Confederacy at the very moment that the Confederacy is put to death. And in some ways, I say... One of the comments that I make is it's easier that way for people. I mean, it's easier to idealize a Confederate state once it no longer exists because then it can never let you down. And it can fulfill all the idyllic dreams and wishes you want it to have because it never can exist and can never actually fail you in any way. You're right. It really is similar to Kentucky, and particularly Ann Marshall's work that has recently come out, which I reference in a note at the end of the book. I mean, that, you know, Kentucky joined the Confederacy. You know, the joke is Kentucky joined the Confederacy after the war was over. And in some ways, it's similar for Carter County. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, creating a Confederate Kentucky. I'm looking at it on, on the shelf here. It's one I'm sure. hoping to, to get her on the show at some point to talk about that. It's a. Uh, uh, Ann's actually a grad, a grad school colleague of mine and a, and a great person. Ah, well, well I'll, I'll take that. I'll drop your name when I contact her, then uh, get her to be here on, on the show. It, it is a, f- a fascinating subject, and, and you see that with neo Confederates idealizing the Confederacy as this you know, libertarian small government paradise, uh, in contrast to the evil federal government. Uh, and, and you can make that argument as long as you don't have to actually deal with any facts and, and don't have to. Uh, uh, it'll recognize what what the Confederacy did, and as you say, the Confederacy can't let you down anymore. There's no nothing to right. work with there. They certainly, as you mentioned, the Neo Confederacy certainly ignore the facts of that the Confederacy became a very sort of powerful institution. I mean, it passed a lot of laws that you could argue infringed on civil rights or individual states' rights. Sure. From, conscri- from conscription to impressment to tax in kind to suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. But you're right. I mean, this idea of I always think sort of jokingly to the 
you remember the old 1980s Hank Williams song, you know, if the South would have won, we'd have it made. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's this joke. It's like, you know, it's this idea that, well, you know, if the South would have won, well, so we can we can create this image of the Confederacy of, oh, it would have done all of these things, but we'll never know. So it's easy for us to uh, to make it this idealized state. That's right. I want to ask one specific question in our last moments here about the, I think it was the 44th Massachusetts um, uh, a student of mine wrote a thesis involving the theatrical performances of this unit, and uh, did you cross, come across anything like that, Union troops putting on plays and, and concerts? Oh, sure. All the time, actually. And, uh, and I don't want to say every Union regiment did it, but um, a great many of them did. And, and part of it was, I interpret it as, um, just, you know, Occupation duty is unrelentingly boring. I mean, it was just its monotony, um, very few attempts to engage in combat with anyone, a few guerrillas taking pot shots at you, subtle resistance amongst the local civilians, especially the occupying troops basically acting as a police force, and they hated it. You know, I have a chapter in the book that talks about how occupation affected the Union soldiers, and they just they generally despised it, became fairly despairing about it. One of the ways to relieve that monotony, one of the ways to relieve that boredom, was to engage in these pageants or plays or whatever, and and some of them really elaborate. Um, you know, <laughs> redoing Shakespeare with an all-male soldier, you know, <laughs> cast, you know, having having large uh, pageants and balls with uh, some of the prettier males dressing up as females in order to be the the bells of the ball and things like that. I mean, the soldiers will go to great lengths to to keep themselves occupied. And it gives us a sort of Monty Python-esque image in the, in the mind's eye there. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, too soon as always happens on this show. Uh, but I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Well, I want to thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. And listeners, you'll want to get yourself a copy of Shifting Loyalties, The Union Occupation of Eastern North Carolina by Judkin Browning. It's a fascinating look at this part of the state and what happened here. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 